OSL is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We are currently running winter lunchtime on-site sessions discussing the superficial and ortho-voltage treatment portfolio that we distribute for WOMED, owned by Baybig. This comprehensive KV unit portfolio ranges from energies of 50 to 300 KV with excellent patient and staff safety features and we offer an incredible service and support package for your engineering team to ensure a smooth and efficient service for your patients. Please do get in touch if you require further information. And finally, as always, do not hesitate to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable account specialists as and when required. We are all from a radiotherapy background and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Please go to our website at www.osl.uk.com or if you would like to speak to us, please call 01743 462 694. Hi, my name is Laura and I work at Convensis as a Partnerships Manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We will open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensis.co.uk. Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Hi and welcome to podcast number 74. My name's Joe McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Namanjolka Anderson. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Danny Hutton, who talked about his career and his role working in the ODN. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're really pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, JJ, and he's going to be discussing his experience of cancer and the role therapeutic radiographers played in his life. Hi, JJ. Thank you so much for coming on um, Rad Chat. And having worked with you previously, I think it's nice that we're working together again. So thank you. Yeah, it's awesome to be on the show. So, JJ, for people who don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, my goodness. You want a biography? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Uh, so my, my biography is I, I'm a computer scientist. So I studied at university computer science. I then uh, studied number theory. So I'm all into numbers for my master's degree and uh, then got headhunted for a role working for a startup in London doing cryptography. Um, so I did that for a few years um, and then got into really by sort of happenstance, I got into um, neurolinguistic programming, uh, so NLP, so as a therapy. So I became a therapist for a little while. Working in London, I had a little practice in London and I worked on that and then decided to switch back to doing cryptography and security and so uh, worked for a couple of um, defence contractors and things like that. And when I was working for um, one of those defence contractors, they had this... um, they had this requirement that you went through a fit for travel assessment. And so I went through this fit. I desperately just put it off. I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. And, 
eventually hit a wall and they just wouldn't let me go on site and work with customers or anything without going through this fitness for work assessment. And it came back that there was something wrong with my kidneys. So I had to get that followed up with my GP, who then also came back with similar results and so got uh, referred up to a nephrologist who decided that um, I have both horseshoe kidney, so I, the kidneys are joined at the bottom, and I also have IgA nephropathy. And I was quite overweight at the time and uh, generally unhealthy, and so he said, you know, you need to change your diet and you need to change your, your fitness regime. So I got into, changed my diet completely, so only eat organic food now, I cook everything, I don't make any, um, I don't really do very many takeaways or anything like that, I drink water and milk and fruit juice and that's pretty much it, and also then got into fitness and got really into park run and um, all sorts of running, and then... Um, a couple of years after that, I then had a cardiac arrest when I was at home. I was asleep and my wife kind of woke up. I had, I had agonal breathing and so she dragged me onto the floor by the side of my bed at three o'clock in the morning and gave me CPR for 20 minutes before um, uh, an ambulance arrived, put into a coma and then recovered from that and went, was whisked off to Papworth. They didn't know what it was, what had caused my cardiac arrest, but they decided to put an ICD under my shoulder as an insurance against that type of thing happening again. And that was about seven and a half years ago. And then in 2019, I was, um, I was doing some revision with my daughter for her GCSEs doing biology revision. And she had some flashcards and she sort of showed the flashcards and I said, pick one. And so we picked one and it was on the lymphatic system. And so I said, you've got lymph nodes, you've got them under your, under your uh, armpits, you've got some on the inside of your legs and you've got them under, under, your, under your jawbone here. And as I felt on the right hand side of my jaw, I could feel like this lump. And so I said, ah, that's probably just stress. It's probably just angry lymph nodes getting angry as they do and kind of thought nothing of it and and then sort of two or two or so weeks later it was still there so I went to my GP and I said what 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 is this is it and yeah yeah it's probably just a lymph node that's probably all it is don't worry about it. If, it if it changes in size then come back in two weeks time and sure enough in two weeks time it got a bit bigger and it was starting to cause me a bit of discomfort as well. It was making swallowing. And it was very visible, actually, on the side of my neck. And so I was, um, I was then forwarded on to ear, nose and throat, who then did um, a biopsy, which, by the way, was really uncomfortable. They put a pair of scissors, basically, down your throat and just cut away with... Um, a pair of rather well tug away with a pair of rather nasty scissors um, that came back negative um, so they did another biopsy th uh, lancing through the skin and then then did another one with fine needle of aspiration and the um, the one through the skin 
came back as negative, but the one with fine needle aspiration came back as positive for cancer. And so <clears throat> within, I think within, well, actually by the end of that day, they then referred me to the oncologist. So I had my appointment on the same day as I got the results for the cancer. I had an appointment with the oncologist, uh, wonderful guy, Dr. Scrace. Um, and he then, he worked over that weekend because I remember the, the appointment was on a Friday. He then worked over the weekend to start devising up the plan of what we needed to do, taking into account my cardiac health, taking into account the issues with my kidneys and the IgA nephropathy. And within, I think within two or three weeks, I had started uh, radiotherapy and had also started chemotherapy um, at the same time. And uh, yeah, so I had cisplatin chemotherapy weekly and I had um, daily radiotherapy during the week. Um, and then that all concluded um, in October, early October of 2019. So I think the whole thing, I think it was six weeks of treatment in total end to end. And I think from diagnosis, it would have been like 10 weeks in total um, to the completion of that. Um, that therapy and then and then obviously recovering takes a long time much longer than I think I ever thought it would um, and uh, and then just as I was returning to work obviously Covid then struck and um, so all of that time that I had been you know immunosuppressed staying away from people I then got letters through the door from the government telling me hey, you're in the highly critical, highly vulnerable group, please steer clear of everybody. And so um, then kind of suffered through that again, um, just missing human contact, missing, uh, having to do all of my meetings over online, etc. And, um, and then really, really kind of struggled, if I'm honest. Um, through that process and the, the recovery was just prolonged and protracted much longer than it really needed to be. Um, yeah, and then <laughs> had some time away from work as a result of that and then started coming back at the beginning of this year in 2022. So um, I started returning in May and then unfortunately my mother passed away from uh, bowel cancer uh, on the 12th of June. So, um, yeah, it's been a bit of a rocky road and, um, and, yeah, but I'm the right side of it now. I'm closer to the finish than I am the start. So, uh, yeah, making a good recovery. So yeah. that's me. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, JJ, everything you have been through is just, yeah, I, you know, it's so much for one person to have to go through and at exactly as you yeah. said in such a short period of time as well what do you think was the hardest aspect of it all because you know I'm just thinking largely from your wife's perspective she saved your life that in itself must have just been absolutely horrific for her and you for everything that you went through and then to get a cancer diagnosis as well. So I think from my perspective, if I'm being slightly selfish, the cardiac arrest, I don't remember. Like 
I was asleep and then I woke up and I was in hospital and I had tubes down my throat. Um, so I don't really remember it. And, and what I do remember is coming round and going, why are all these people fussing over me? I just want to get out. I don't feel any different. Like, let me out, get these tubes out of my arms, get them out of my throat and other places. And I just want to get on with my life. In fact, I remember being adamant that the one thing I wanted to do was get out and start running. That was my goal. I was just absolutely incredibly selfish about my recovery. And I was just like, I just want to run. And in fact, the year after 2016, I ran a thousand miles. Um, uh, just because my, my cardiologist was saying, oh no, you just got to be slow, take your time, all these sorts of things. And I was like, absolutely not. I'm, I'm such a polarity responder. If someone tells me I can't do something, I'll find a way to do it. But what, I mean, as, as um, encouraging as that appeared to be on the surface to a lot of other people, and certainly to the cardiac community of me just sort of, you know, raising a middle finger to basically a lot of people and just saying, I'm just going to get on with this and do what I want to do. And this is my life. I'm going to live it the way I want to live it. Um, it did mean that, um, my, my partner, my wife, um, and my family suffered. They went through a trauma that I just hadn't gone through at all. And their recovery is still ongoing. Like my wife still has problems sleeping at night. Um, particularly if I've got cold or, or anything like that and my breathing is in, in a strange way she just really struggles to sleep I know that one of my sons he also has um, struggled with um, night terrors and all sorts of other uh, psychological issues resulting from him sort of having to help my wife drag me onto the floor um, so and I think my daughters as well have, have struggled then when we look at the cancer diagnosis, I definitely went through that trauma. But when I went through it, I went through it with a very stoic attitude. I went to, through it going, hey, look, IGA nephropathy hasn't killed me off. Cardiac arrest hasn't killed me off. This damn thing is not going <laughs> to... This is I get, this is just a lump on my throat. I can shake this. This is going to be dead easy. You're going to throw radio waves at me? Ha, I'm invincible. Watch me. And so going into it, um, everyone was like staring at me like I was about to jump out of an airplane, like gleefully um, going, you, you, you do know this is going to be really difficult and tough and you're going to like lose the ability to talk and eat and you're going to have to be fed through a tube and it's going to be painful and we're really sorry we're going to have to do this to you, but it's, it's really the best sort of form. And I was like, just bring it on. Like, it's not like I had a choice. It wasn't like I was going to say, oh, you know what? I kind of don't want the chemotherapy or the radiotherapy. Like, that wasn't a choice. So um, I just went into it guns blazing, just thinking I was just going to knock this for six. Um, and that's not what happened at all. Um, I think midway through the third week, it was really taking it down to, and I, I continued to try and park run during my, my uh, treatment. And literally after the first week, um, I, I couldn't run 5k. It just that one week of radiotherapy and one chemotherapy session. And I, I was walking it. It's the longest time that I've ever taken to do 5k and I've walked it since faster. 
it really knocks the wind out of your sails and I just was not entirely conscious of how hard it was going to hit me um, and then by uh, well week three had passed and we were just coming into week four and my wife was really I was had the rig installed but I was uh, vomiting a lot I was just in pain all the time um, none of the pain medication seemed to be really touching um, much of what was happening um, lots of blood and all sorts of excretions were were happening um, and it was just awful it, I, I remember during that time walking towards the radiotherapy ward just going I don't want to do this I just want I just want this to stop this is just much much harder this is the hardest thing I've ever done I just I think I've taken as much as I can take and my wife sat me on a wall just outside the hospital and she said there are children that go through this there are elderly people that go through this you're fit you're healthy in all other respects you can do this as well and that's what kind of got me through going through it but um, yeah it was horrific I, I ended up being hospitalized so managed by a ward for, for a good sort of three or four weeks um, but yeah I'm hopefully well obviously now the better side of uh, all of that treatment um, but yeah it it impacted me in a much more harsh and vicious way than I thought it would and my family went through it with me and I think um, it gave me an insight into possibly what it was like for them to deal with my cardiac arrest but I'm sure it's I'm sure it's not it's a pale comparison because obviously the radiotherapy is over a prolonged period of time like, and we know it's happening we know it's about to happen whereas the cardiac arrest is just out of the blue you just got to suddenly put your underpants on the outside of your trousers and become that superhero and deliver CPR right so um, I'm just very pleased that my wife was able to do that for me so yeah it, very different types of trauma and um, I had two rounds of uh, counselling following uh, my treatment which I didn't think I was going to need because obviously I've been a therapist myself I kind of know how that whole thing works how to sort of timelines and building good feelings and all those kind of good things um, and I was just massively underprepared for it um, lots of introspection um, what am I doing with my life why am I being hit round the head by this cricket bat constantly what have I done in a previous life or whatever you want to whatever you want to um, think about um, so uh, and then after that I and, and then once we were into COVID um, I then had CBT and uh, some further therapies um, during that as well uh, just to cope with anxiety and depression severe depression that I was um, going through as a result of just lacking human contact and connection and all of those things that I thought was there waiting for me and ultimately was torn away from me at the last minute so yeah wow it's clearly quite a long journey and I think that's something obviously we try to highlight to people going through any treatment that yes you can have the treatment 
you know you'll be able to get through it hopefully but the real kind of healing does start afterwards it's a long journey if you want to find that new normal i think you've highlighted the the support network and how important it is obviously some people don't have access to any support at all uh, there are some lonely patients that we've had i think i know joe you've we've talked about it as well but who have no one and actually the support network is the team i think that's where it really comes in and obviously you said about the consultant spending the whole weekend trying to figure out how to get you in for treatment that's the the unsung heroes I would say there's a lot of people like that in the NHS who keep doing things like that at the minute. And it, it's amazing to see. And then obviously your wife, your children going through a different trauma every time. I know you mentioned about going through the lymphatics with the daughter. Did you, when you first felt the lump, did you say anything to her? Um, I, I briefly said, oh, there's a, you want to feel a lymph node? There it is. Have a go on that. I didn't, and, and that's a mistake that I made. Um, so if I um, have to talk to anybody about throat and neck cancer, it's as soon as you know anything at all, even if it's the merest hint, like involve your family, because I didn't. I actually waited until that referral to the oncologist. It was only when I got that positive cancer um, from the uh from the fine needle aspiration, that is the point at which I told my wife. I literally told nobody because I was absolutely convinced that it was nothing. And that was a real, because it then was just massive shock and trauma to my wife. You've got cancer, how long have you known? I'm like, well, you know, a couple of months. I've had this lump, but I haven't known it's cancer until today. And so it, it was a big shock for Sasha and then trying to reveal that to my family, my extended family. And of course, <clears throat> elderly relatives, as the word cancer, that's a death knoll, right? They just see that as, oh, well, that's, that's the end of the line. And they don't realize maybe that the treatments have progressed so exponentially since maybe they were sort of uh, aware of cancer that, um, that there's so much that can be done. So I made it very, very, I was very open about it. Once I had the diagnosis, once I had the treatment plan, I was incredibly open and I, I made, um, in fact, this was advice that I was given from a friend whose wife had gone through cancer treatment and it was to create like a chat room somewhere. I think they use WhatsApp, but um, I won't use WhatsApp for whatever reasons. Um, and so what I decided to do was keep a video diary. Um, I'm, I'm dyslexic and so writing is a difficult thing to do and I thought well, I'm going to be lacking energy at some point during this so I've got to find a medium which is going to be easy for me to communicate. So I'm, I kept a video diary and I just made it private so that only my friends and family that I shared the link with could access it but they would be notified whenever there was an update and, and it just meant I didn't have to repeat myself. I didn't have to go over it again. And again, that's from a psychological basis. I don't want to go over and over and over the same sort of thing because it, it just kind of compounds it. I just wanted to have one release and say, this is where I am. This is what I know. This is what I don't know. And this is where I think we're going to end up in a day or two's time. And I just kept that diary. And looking back on it, I did review it like... a. About nine months ago, I, I looked over some of the videos that I'd, I'd recorded and um, they're a mess, like 
some of the things I thought were going to happen just were not going to happen at all. And some of the things that I was saying just didn't really scope in the whole, the whole breadth of what was happening. So that was a really important piece of advice and it worked very much to my benefit, but it turns out to the benefit of other head and neck cancer patients. So I've had two people now who have just randomly fallen onto that YouTube channel, which I've now made public. Um, so there's nothing in there that's worrisome. Um, there might be the occasional bit of swearing and I apologize in advance. Um, but it's, um, they, those two people were about to get, they'd got the diagnosis, but they hadn't started the treatment and they were both very concerned about what was going to happen. And so I remember getting an, uh, an email from one, one of those people saying, we got our diagnosis today. We've li we've literally watched all of your videos back to back. Can we meet up? Can I have a chat? It's really great. Thank you so much for the series. It's really sort of helped me understand what I'm going to be going through. So um, it has had a secondary benefit beyond um, just my own personal benefit of being able to communicate with the family. But returning to your point, um, involving the family is hugely important. And, and it was a mistake I made um, and I regret and I, you know, God forbid, I don't ever have to go through it again. But if I did, that would be one of the things I would do would be just to involve the family because you're part of an ecosystem, right? You're, you're not just an individual going through cancer. You're an individual that is being supported by the, your family and by those professionals supporting your therapy. And um, the, the team, the therapeutic radiographers at Ipswich Hospital, shout out uh, to Dale and all those guys and gals, uh, they've been absolute angels. They treated me like a prince um, and they had no justification for doing so. Um, they were just absolutely wonderful. And I can't speak highly of them enough. When I was fitted with my rig, um, there was no food and I, I just was not able to eat. And one of the therapeutic radiographers said, we've got some in a back room, we'll come round. And they literally delivered it to my front door. Um, and I've maintained contact even, even now with, um, with the team. We meet up at Park Run, so I've got them doing Park Run now. Um, so meet up with them. Uh, on occasions, uh, Christmas cards are exchanged. Um, they've uh, during COVID, we did sort of some of them would drive over to my house, and from the doorstep, we would have a conversation about how I was getting on. Um, and they kept in constant touch. If I've had any concerns about um, you know tightness in my neck or um, blisters that might appear in my mouth or throat, um, they've just been able to grease the wheels of all of the referrals necessary to get me the investigations as, as quickly as possible. And, and, and I can only speak highly of, of that process. They've, they've been really, um, but they've gone above and beyond what I even could have possibly imagined uh, they could have. So yeah, they, they've been ace. Always lovely to hear. Um, therapeutic radiographers and experience obviously we're very biased on this podcast but it's that multidisciplinary approach as well isn't it I mean you've touched on the psychological services but also just the knowing that someone's there at the end of the phone 
um, which, which is obviously what we champion in the NHS for any department. But I think in oncology specifically, you know, there are late effects, acute side effects, anything that can happen. And that's what we're here for. Um, before going any further, JJ, we were just thinking we haven't actually asked you what your diagnosis was. Uh, it was tonsillar cancer. Um, I can't remember the numbers and letters. There is a bunch of numbers and letters that came after it. If you, I can Google it and find out, but it was tonsillar cancer. Uh, left tonsil, uh, sorry, right tonsil. And the, so we, we gave radiotherapy to uh, both tonsils, actually. Um, and yeah, like I said, six weeks of that. Um, I have been clear. So the, the lump on my neck by the end of the treatment had dissolved and dissipated and it has not returned. Um, so I have um, every three months or so they, they put the Hubble telescope down my throat and have a look around and just see what's, uh, what's in there. Interestingly, um, he, the, the um, ENT consultant would, would put, it, put the thing down my throat and would go, oh yeah, nice and smooth, absolutely brilliant, yep absolutely fine and then whip the camera out and and it gave me no confidence at all because when he first put the the telescope down like pre-diagnosis he was like yep everything's fine there's no lumps down there he even got his finger and like felt my tonsil and was like yep there's no lumps there no we're all good and so the fact that he kept saying like on a three monthly or even on a four weekly basis oh there's nothing there it's all smooth it's all gone what it took him 18 months to tell me was you don't have a tonsil anymore. Like the radiotherapy has just obliterated that entire area. You don't have a tonsil, it's smooth. And so now, if it were ever to return, it would stick out like a like a needle in a on a flat plane, right? It would just poke out and it would be really, really obvious that there was that cancer had returned. Um, whereas before it was masked by the fact it would have grown inside the the tonsillar material and matter. So um, once he explained, that's why he kept saying it was smooth and all these other nice things. Oh yeah, it's nice and pink. And uh, oh, now I understand. Oh, thank you. That's 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 now set my mind at ease. But yeah. It's a really, really good point, though, isn't it? As healthcare professionals, I reflect much more now since doing Rad Chat on the things that I say to patients, used to say to patients. And we know in our head what, what we mean when we are referring to X, Y or Z. But being really clear with patients and really explicit about what you're looking for, you know, why you're looking for it, what it looks like, I think can really help patients understand and feel reassured because we all know that especially if you've had a misdiagnosis for a period of time that anxiety is high around having any post-treatment follow-up because you have that fear of you know has the treatment worked is it potentially going to come back and 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 how are we then going to deal with that um but it's a really really interesting point that from a patient's perspective being very clear very explicit almost kind of talking to the patient about what you're doing as you're doing it can really help do you still get anxiety about the follow-ups that you go for um 
I, d I don't get anxiety about the follow-ups. I mean, I had a lot of COVID anxiety because um, obviously it's all that kind of area and doing swabs of that area now is really difficult because there's almost nothing to swab. So, um, but no, I don't, I don't get anxiety about it. And, and I made a conscious point when I got my diagnosis of not Googling anything at all. Like I've mentioned before, I'm a computer scientist. I've done number theory. I just dive super deep into the detail. Like if someone sends me the name of some Greek thing, then I'm gonna go and look it up and I'm gonna understand it. I got really, well, after my cardiac arrest, I got really into understanding heart and I can now, I went on several courses to read ECGs. Um, so I did the whole shebang. Um, but I was very conscious that if I did the same leading into my cancer, I would actually create anxiety for myself that wasn't actually even there. It would, it would be more worrisome than, than if I didn't know anything at all. And I was given a lot of literature to go and read, which honestly, I still have not read. Um, because I just don't think there's value in me... Um, understanding you know x and x a percentage of people are going to find these things x and x a percentage of people are going to have dryness of their throat those types of statistics can become self-fulfilling self prophecies and so to avoid all of that I just didn't read any of the medication literature even though you're supposed to I didn't read any of the uh, therapeutic literature that was coming in and I just relied entirely on word of mouth I'd just say this feels unusual, is it normal? And they would say, yes, that's absolutely normal. I'd go, perfect, that's what I wanna know because now with the therapeutic radiographer, we've got a conversation going on and I'm, I'm able to just be very open rather than just have read this thing that says, oh yeah, dryness of mouth and throat, that's normal. Rather than say that, I can say, hey, my mouth is dry, is that normal? Ah, his mouth is dry, we know what we can do to help support it rather than me just suffer in silence i've got a dry throat and lots of people struggle with it so um yeah i don't know whether that was the right thing or wrong thing i personally well actually personally i think it was the right thing for me to do just because it it would have played into my anxiety because i, I mean i have briefly looked at the survival rates of the type of cancer that i had and they're not particularly wonderful um, so I'm, I'm very, I, I know I'm lucky to have made it as far as I have. And I think that now I've breached over a certain threshold that statistically it, it, the likelihood of it returning is almost insignificant. So, um, but I think if I'd have known after my treatment, hey, there's a 90, 80% likelihood of it returning within the next 12 months, I'd have gone, why the hell am I going through this treatment? Like, this is awful. I don't want to do this. That conversation um, so, on the wall may have been very different with yeah. your wife. Yes, exactly. It's interesting when you look at kind of what you're explaining. So some people obviously want to read everything. And we as healthcare professionals, sort of legally, we have to give as much information as we can. But we also, I mean, I've sat in when patients have been consented or have caught up with consultants and you just get like a small library to take away with you. Or we can email it to you. It, I mean, either way, it doesn't matter, right? It's still going to be bombarding you with lots of different things but then at the same time the worry is that you don't know what information to pick out because quite a few books so let's say 
Macmillan, they're quite generalist, so not everything is in there, and lots of the things they cover may never actually be appropriate for you. But I've had patients say, I've read that cover to cover, and you're thinking, oh no, there's bits in there that aren't appropriate for you. But it's really difficult for us to navigate that. Um, But I think what you've alluded to with obviously your consultant talking to you and your family was just the honesty, and that's probably what you wanted. But I think the honesty is the harder bit for someone in in the family because they probably don't want to accept everything you're going through yet either, whereas you might be further ahead in that journey than they are, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and it did become an education. If you if you look back at the YouTube videos, um, like whenever words like collimator came out or, or anything like that, I'd like dive super deep into what that is and then try to explain it to my family through the YouTube videos um, as to what what was actually happening to me, what um, cisplatin chemotherapy is, why they've chosen that over something else. But I was purely relying on the team telling me and the very briefest amounts of Googling because I just know from... I know from my experience that I can get myself into trouble and I can start self-diagnosing things that that are not there. And as I say, I dive deep in into the detail of it and and that's both a good and a bad thing so just to protect myself on that occasion i chose not to maybe dive as deep as i normally would um yeah with you explaining sort of these things to your children obviously as they grow up how have they been able to navigate it so obviously that you've been honest with them but not everyone is it's um it is a difficult conversation i'm blessed slightly in as much as my youngest daughter was 14 so she was already like you know she's going through science GCSEs so she's already fairly well versed in some of the technologies and some of the things that were going on but um, I brought my eldest daughter along to some of my radiotherapy sessions and um, the therapeutic radiography team were awesome and they opened one of the machines up so they could have a look at the side, like see where, where all, the, all, the, all the gubbins were all working. And, and we were able, I was able to get my daughter involved in that so that she could see how it was all going to work and how it all sort of span around. We put a, um, a camera in the room while I was having my treatment as well so that she could see what was happening to dad while, while it was happening. Um, obviously she couldn't be in the room so the camera was was a good sort of um, window into that um, that experience for her but again just trying to be super open and honest about everything and um, it was traumatic Um, my uh, eldest well my three elder sons they were um, abroad for uh, they live abroad so they they actually came back um, during the second week of my treatment just to help my wife out really Um, but they're much older at the time Um, you know they're in their 20s so much more able to have adult conversations about what was happening Um, I think just I mean I've got younger nieces I don't think they really understood what was happening and, and that's probably okay um, but my my brothers and my my mother and my father um, really struggled with it because 
obviously I don't live with my parents anymore. Um, and they're of that age where cancer is this big problem. Um, I think that it, um, it almost certainly caused them a lot of anxiety not being involved. And so again, I got my dad to come along with me and take me uh, into the radiotherapy team and, you know, uh, introduce him to some of the, the people in the team so that he kind of had, and I think, annoyingly, he may have even enjoyed that. Um, but, um, you know, giggling and laughing with the team. But yeah, he, um, I think my mother really struggled with it as well. Um, and certainly when I was hospitalised, I, I think, I, I mean, obviously I was just on so many opiates and medication I don't really remember but I don't think my parents came to visit just simply because I don't think I think it was just a bit too painful for them to see me in that position um but I think I had lots of visitors lots of people coming to say hello I had a little book at the side of my bed that people could write write things in so that I would remember that they'd been because my memory was just so shot um but it's an it was good to keep those kinds of little keepsakes and diaries of what was going on. Have you got any tips for patients going through kind of a similar treatment to yourself of things that you did that you think really helped you? Because you've mentioned like the book, it's really helpful for patients who are anticipating to go through something like this. Yeah, I think the, the biggest one was the YouTube thing, the video diary. That was absolutely crucial and critical to um, both at the time both for me reviewing it afterwards and realizing I was getting worried about things that really I didn't need to worry about and the practicality of it was much easier but also the secondary benefit that I wasn't having to repeat it to friends and family those are those are really um, those were really helpful um, I think that's the that's the the major thing coming and there are lots of other little tips and tricks um, that I'm really pleased that I had in my back pocket but weirdly enough the year before I'd started park running uh, and had made friends with a bunch of uh, deaf runners and so we the only way that we really communicated was on Facebook because I, I couldn't communicate with them while we were running and it was there was a bit of a language barrier and so I did a course in sign language, which meant when I lost my voice, I then could use sign language with my deaf friends and I could communicate more easily with them than I could with the grunts and snorts that I was able to uh, with, with um, you know, able hearing people. So um, learning sign language I found really helpful. Some of the radiographers had learnt some sign language as well. So I was able to communicate and say I was in pain or I was having a good day or how much I'd eaten, how much I'd managed to keep down, those types of things. Rather than having to write, again, as I say, writing and reading is difficult for me. So it's um, much easier for me to be verbose and, and talk and obviously then use sign language as a mechanism of doing that. Um, so learning sign language. There were a couple of other little tips that I, I haven't seen anywhere else. Um, one was, uh, oh, I used to get these crusts of Qatar across my tongue that would, I mean, in the morning, sort of reaching in with your finger and dragging this stuff out. It was absolutely vile. It was really sort of stuck onto the tongue. 
the oncologist said, um, get some effervescent vitamin C tablets that you would normally put in a drink of water. He said, put that on your tongue and it will just effervescent all of that stuff away and it just worked to treat just so so easy oh my goodness why does everyone not know about that um but being i mean honestly being super honest like being really upfront with the team telling them what you're going through even if it's you think it's completely unrelated to uh, the treatment that you're going through whatever it is they will direct you in the right direction just you just got to be honest and open about everything don't don't man up too hard um and you know the team are there to support you it is a team effort at the end of the day like yes i'm the subject of it yes i'm the person going through it but i wouldn't make it all the way through without the support of the team and the support of and when i say team radiographers oncologists but also my family and my partner and my wife so yeah it's it's a team effort and being honest about everything is the best piece of advice I can give thank you for sharing JJ um so how are you now because you've been through such a journey you've obviously now come out of covid um and having lost your mum you know I can imagine still from a psychological perspective, that's hard. How are you coping now post-treatment and finding your new normal? Oh man, I remember when I went in to my treatment, my oncologist said, you won't be the same person coming out of this as you are going in. And I was like, absolutely, I will be the same person. I am going to be strong. And it was, it was interesting that he was right. Um, and I think it has been a journey. And um, I mean, today I'm now on leave. I'm taking some nice Christmas time break. Um, I'm back at work. So I've been working, uh, I returned to work in May um, of this year. And uh, I'm back at 100%. I'm working with customers directly. I've been traveling to Switzerland and um, all over the place. So. Yeah, I'm basically back to normal in terms of work. I don't think about the cancer at all, really, until someone talks about it. So it's not a daily thought that I have, that I have to think about. It's only when uh, I have, as I say, the Hubble telescope chucked down my throat, um, that I have to think about it then, and I get slightly anxious about it, but I have coping and coping mechanisms around that now. Um, and... Other than that, I mean, I still, I have a lot of dryness in my mouth. I have not regained um, um, a lot of the taste that, taste sensation that I have um, is missing. So I do weirdly enjoy very hot curries now, which I didn't, I was almost phobic of hot curries before. But nowadays, Carolina Reapers and Trinidad Scorpions are definitely on the menu. Um, I, I do wonder whether that is. I mean, you can we could ask Doctor Doctor uh, King right about this. Whether whether there's some sort of psychological, you know, torment I'm causing myself by having this burning sensation, but it also increases mucal flow. So it it actually makes my saliva glands 
gush slightly and so it makes all of that area although some might say it feels angry but actually it, it, all my saliva starts flowing which it doesn't normally and drinking water as I, I tend to drink water all the time now it, it washes all of that away so weirdly it has the wrong effect on my throat like I'm, I'm dry when I'm talking for too long so I take a glass of water and whatever protection was there is then washed away. So, um, yeah. So I have a few things that I need to be concerned about, but they're so minor in, in comparison to, I'm sure, uh, a lot of other people. I'm in a very good place uh, today, or a much better place today than I was three years ago. We had um, Emma Hallam, who's a consultant therapeutic radiographer on, and she runs a late effects clinic. And she said exactly as you've described, you know, you need to drink lots of fluid. But she suggested one of her top tips was to get a spray bottle of, of water and just spray rather than obviously having to take a drink. So that's a helpful hint that's for anyone nice who's one. going through things. So, yeah, one, I mean, I do drink lemon juice. So I will literally an entire lemon, I'll squeeze it into a glass and I'll just take a sip of that, swill it around my mouth. And that's, that has a very similar sort of refreshing, but it, because it's so sour, it makes your saliva glands clench down a bit. And so you get a bit of protection for a little bit longer as well. How is your, you know, your family post-treatment now? I know you've touched on it already, but... You said they're still kind of going through some of the traumatic experiences. Have they gone for any psychological support, that sort of thing? Um, n- not to my knowledge. I'm not sure they would necessarily share it. Certainly my wife has um, not gone for any counselling at all. Um, she was offered it during my treatment. Um, she was offered it more than once, actually. And I think she may have had like one discussion with a counsellor, but... They decided not to take it any further. Um, in terms of the rest of my family, I think my my dad, having had having seen me go through what I went through with my cardiac arrest, and then go through cancer, he was already on a back foot when then my mother got her diagnosis of bowel cancer. Um, so stage four when it was diagnosed, so it was very uh, progressed um, and and terminal, and so since then, um, obviously every time I've had, so I did have a lump that I had on my neck, um, actually during while while we were gearing up towards my mother's funeral, and that was really difficult because obviously I wanted to share it, but it's the C word, and I don't want to really labour the family again with another sort of traumatic experience if, if it really wasn't anything. So I'd discuss it with my immediate family, but I didn't didn't really, I was not open maybe with my father, because uh, I think that was too much for him. And even since then, uh, my wife has had, um, my wife has had a mole, uh, uh, biopsied which turned out to be malignant so we've had a few cases since then where we've again had to be quite open about the c word um and again just being really brutally like as soon as we know literally within the first 10 minutes of us knowing 
it has gone out onto the grapevine and the family know exactly where everything lies because that honesty is the best approach for all of that stuff because it, it gives everybody time and everybody then trusts you um, people don't think that you're hiding anything if you're just being very open about everything um, rather than trying to protect people who it's it should be their choice in how they protect themselves not yours you're taking a choice away from them by um, by doing so so it was it's very conscious in being having those very adult conversations and saying this is what's happening this is how it's happening this is what we know so far this is what we're doing about it and just being very open about all of that because uh, trying to protect people with silence is is not going to help them or you in the long term I, I know that from my 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 experience of it So JJ, we're nearing the end of the podcast episode and you've already, um, without us paying you, talked really beautifully about how amazing therapeutic radiographers are. For anyone in the audience who is a healthcare professional, how do they how do they ensure that they are supporting their patients? You know, what what is it that the therapeutic radiographers did that has left a lasting impression on you? From day one. From the very first day I stepped into the radiotherapy department, they said, we don't know what you're going to go through. We have not gone, we've not had radiotherapy ourselves. We've seen a lot of people go through it. And we know the kind of steps that are going to be taken. We know what the therapy is going to be. We don't know what you're going to go through. It's your personal journey. And we will be there to support you at every single stage from whatever angle from whatever part it was um, we are there and here as holistic help it may say radiography on the badge but it was totally holistic what they were doing it was every it was me sort of um, worried about my wife and so someone would then go and talk to my wife while I was having a treatment and it was me sort of saying, I'm finding it difficult to swallow and having conversations about that, having worries, you know, worried about the ulcers that were appearing in my mouth or my ability, you know, not having access to um, the right food or not being able to keep the food down or the pain levels being too high or whatever it was. So long as I was honest with them, we were a team. It wasn't just me going through the treatment. It was me with that team and it was a squad of people and I built a relationship with them and they built a relationship with me that was so intertwined that we knew how each other were doing and, and you know, to keep and progress through um, the treatment together. It was crucial was that they didn't think of me as just a body and you know that for, you know somehow my mind was my mind and personality being left at the door and I was just going to have be bombarded with radiation in the room and then taken out and then suddenly reunited with my my personality I was in there with them and they treated me as a human being not a not so much as a patient and I really appreciated that and uh, I very very much value the relationship 
um, that was built there and remain and continues to build there. Um, I'm very, very grateful for that team for what they did, and I'll forever be indebted. Thank you so much, JJ, for sharing. What's your wife's name? Sasha. So Sasha, I think this this episode definitely needs to go out to <laughs> Sasha for saving your life probably twice. I think JJ, um, yeah, you know the conversation on that. the wall, and then obviously doing CPR for twenty minutes. She's obviously an amazing person, as are you. Um, so thank you, and hopefully she'll uh, she'll appreciate the fact that she's got she's got lots of mentions, lots of recognition for <laughs> amazing work. And I know you do actively, don't you, promote um, CPR and um, work with the is it the British Heart Foundation that you work with? Yeah, I do. Uh, so I, I do a lot of work for uh, CPR training across well now across the globe. So with the organisation that I work with, I've been able to train thousands of people in CPR across the globe. We know that through those programmes that were initiated by me, we've saved at least four people's lives. So, I mean, saving one person's life makes the whole thing worth it. Just to know that we've at least saved four people, I think, is just fabulous. So, yeah, I do a lot of work for the British Heart Foundation, very par a partner with them. And I've also done uh, a lot of fundraising um, and support for the therapeutic radiographers in Ipswich. So I think there's a Macmillan video out there talking about there the is a There's a little really successful Macmillan yeah. video, JJ. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it is. Um, my my stardom uh, was ignited at that point, obviously. Um, and... I've also done some fundraising for the therapeutic radiographers and, and also involved with the Sheffield Hallam University train uh, and as part of their course module they were able to some of the undergraduates were able to interview me and find out secondhand maybe quite what um, some of the therapies were like and um, what what was what supported me and and what they could maybe do in their careers to be better therapeutic radiographers than they already are no oh, thank you jj and so for anyone listening if you don't know how to do cpr go out and learn because you will save a life absolutely so thank you all for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been myself, Jay McNamara and Namanjolka Anderson. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your C CPD certificate, please complete the Google form link with the podcast. So thank you all very much for joining us and take care.